Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. So that's our metaphor. My guest today is Steve Taylor, PhD, who is the author of several best-selling books on psychology and spirituality, and he's a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University. He's the current chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society, and his books include Waking from Sleep, The Fall, The Leap, Spiritual Science, The Clear Light, which is a book of wonderful poems, and his new book, Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. These books have been published in 20 languages, and Eckhart Tolle has described his work as an important contribution to the shift in consciousness which is happening on our planet at present. And his website, which will be in the show notes, is www.stephenwithavtmtaylor.com. So, Steve, warm welcome to Imaginal Inspirations. Uh, and uh, we're going to plunge straight into talking about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Uh, well, I have two uh, parallel careers. I have a career, well, I don't really call them careers, but I have two roles. Uh, I don't like to think in careerist terms, but I have two roles. One is as an author and the other is as a psychologist. And um, yeah, if I may, there, there were two sort of def- defining moments within each role. Um, and as an author, the defining moment was when I switched topics because I always wanted to be a writer from the age of like 17 or 18. I was aware of a, a compulsion to write. And from the age mm-hmm. of 20 or so, I was writing quite obsessively, you know, sort of four or five hours a day. But back then I was kind of immersed in literature. I was studying literature at university. So I thought that my compulsion to write should be focused into novels and poems and stories. And that continued for maybe seven or eight years. I carried on writing novels, three or four novels, lots of stories and poems too. But it just wasn't really working out. There was a sense of frustration. It wasn't really somehow, it wasn't right somehow. Something wasn't really working out. And I kept getting rejections from publishers. Like every few weeks, a new rejection letter would come in from a publisher. So it was very disheartening. But at the same time, I had this sort of growing interest in psychology, spirituality and philosophy. When I read books, those are the, the books I chose to read. So eventually, I think I was about 29, it occurred to me that I should really be writing about spirituality, philosophy and psychology. So I thought, well, forget, you know, forget novels and stories. Maybe that's not what I'm meant to do. So I switched to writing about psychology, philosophy initially. And almost straight away, it began to work out. I began to get articles published. And I started to write a book. It was called Waking Up From Sleep which was eventually published many years later. But the, the first version of the book, you know, just sort of flew, uh, flew out of me very, very quickly within a space. Of, I wrote the whole book within three or four months. So it was that kind of switch mm. from writing about writing fiction to writing about philosophy and spirituality. That kind of, that was a very important shift, very important shaping moment. But in terms of my career, I knew that I, you know, I had to work as well as pursuing a career as an author, because, you, you know, as you probably know, it's very difficult to make a living as an author. 
But back then I was just sort of doing mundane jobs of doing some teaching, part-time teaching and, and so forth. But in 1999, I was reading a book by Ken Wilber and it mentioned the term transpersonal psychology. And as soon as I read about it, I thought, wow, transpersonal psychology, this is, this is me. This is where I belong. This is my home. And I found out that there was a master's degree in transpersonal psychology in Liverpool, which is close to where I live in Manchester. So, yeah, as soon as I heard about the term transpersonal psychology, I decided to re-enter the world of academia. And eventually that led to my career as a psychologist. And so that was Les Lancaster, Liverpool John Moores, was it? Exactly, yeah. He was a very influential person for me because, um, you know, he supervised my PhD as well and helped me get my present role as a lecturer. Oh, wonderful. And so he's one of your mentors. But what, what about other influential mentors? In terms of my spiritual life, um, my most important mentor was a guy called Russell Williams. And th- this goes back to around about the same time that I, I decided to switch to writing nonfiction, probably 20, 25 years ago. I used to go to a Gurdjieff group in Manchester and I had a friend there uh, called Tony. And I said to Tony one day, have you ever met an enlightened person? And he said, yeah, yeah, there's actually a guy who lives about two miles away who a lot of people think is enlightened. I thought, wow, that's, that's bizarre. That can't be yeah. true. How can an enlightened, an enlightened person live two miles away? But he said, yeah, why don't you just come on to one of his meetings? So I went along a few days later, and it was Russell Williams. And at first, he didn't fit my image of an enlightened person at all. You know, he wasn't wearing a, a robe. He didn't have a white beard. He looked very, very conventional. He was wearing a suit and a tie. He looked very smart. He just looked like a typical elderly English gentleman who was about 70 at the time and he wasn't intellectual at all he didn't talk about books he hadn't read many books so I was initially a bit skeptical I thought is this guy really enlightened you know can it really be possible but slowly I kept being drawn back to the meetings because afterwards I'd be filled with a sense of well-being you know for two or three days afterwards even if Russell sometimes he'd talk about fairly mundane things sometimes he'd talk about you know the price of food at the supermarkets things like that but, you know, no matter what we talked about, I'd have this feeling of well-being inside me that would last for days afterwards. And every so often he would talk incredibly wisely about consciousness and awareness, and about human nature. And so he became, I guess he became my spiritual teacher. He held meetings every twi- twice a week. And I'd go there maybe every week or every two weeks. And it continued for 20 years until he died uh, three years ago at the age of 96. And yeah, and he had a, a very sort of gentle and, and subtle influence on my whole life, almost at an unconscious level. In some ways, he taught me how to you know, experience the present moment in a state of awareness, how to live gently without pushing too hard, how to sort of trust in life and so forth. So, yeah, he was a very uh, important mentor to me. And he had an extraordinary relationship with animals and horses, as far as I remember. That's right. Yeah. When in fact, he had his spiritual awakening through through a horse because, um, you know, he he had a very traumatic early life. He was orphaned at the age of 11. He left school at the age of 11 and had a really difficult time. Then he was in the war. He was actually at Dunkirk during the war. And that was obviously incredibly traumatic. So after the war, he was completely broken down. He was emotionally and physically broken. And he became a kind of wanderer, like a tramp. He just sort of wandered around doing odd jobs, sleeping rough. And eventually he joined a a traveling circus and it was his job to look after the animals, to look after the horses. And he did that for three years and he formed a very, you know, an incredible bond with the horses. 
and uh, just caring for them day in, day out, sleeping in the stables with them. And he, in, in retrospect, he said it taught him to be mindful, you know, just caring for the horses and forming a connection with them. And one morning, uh, when he was 29 years old, he woke up and everything was different. He realized that he was inside the horses. He was looking out from inside the horse. And wherever he looked, he saw different animals. He realized that he was inside them all. And he looked at people and realized that he was inside them too. And suddenly all the, all the tension and anger he'd been carrying around since his childhood just dissolved away. And he felt this tremendous sense of peace and tremendous sense of oneness. And that became his normal state. He expected it to fade away, but it didn't. It became his normal state. And it took him a long time to understand it. Though. That was the only thing. I think that was in 1950. So it was quite difficult to find information about spiritual awakening. So he didn't really understand what happened to him until several years later. How fascinating. It's an incredible story. Um, yeah. And then moving on to, to books, um, Steve, m- many of my guests can't reduce, uh, reduce themselves to one book. So, so I say book or books. <laughs> and I think one of those was The Outsider. I'm not sure whether you're going to, you were going to mention that, but it's a book that has had an influence on both of us, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly for me, The Outsider was, um, you know, a pivotal book. It goes back to when I was at university, I was very depressed. It was, you know, life was a real struggle and um, I didn't really understand myself and I didn't, I didn't like myself. I kind of hate, I was full of self-hatred and self-loathing and, you know, it was, it was a really real struggle to get by from day to day. And I wanted to be like other people. I wanted to have a good time at university, but I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't, I found it difficult to talk to other people. I found it difficult to socialize and I thought there was something terribly wrong with me that I was kind of destined to be a, you know, a doomed romantic artist, you know, kind of Van Gogh-like figure. Not that I was, you know, anywhere near as talented as that, but I had the feeling that, you know, my life was doomed to disaster. And then I read, uh, I found The Outsider by chance in my university library just after my 20th birthday. And I just picked it up, started reading, sat down and started reading. Like five hours later, I was still there in the library reading. I took it home, carried on reading. I finished the book at four o'clock the next morning and everything was different. You know, it was a real life-changing experience. And partly it was, it was simply because the book told me that it's not a bad thing to be alienated. It was actually in some ways a good thing. It told me that there wasn't anything wrong with me. You know, there was actually something right with me. So it changed my self-image. I thought, wow, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a bit like some of these outsiders and, you know, they are, you know, they're, they're kind of like um, special people, you know, they are valuable people. So it changed my self-image and it, it also introduced me to a whole range of literature. I'm sure, that, I'm sure this is the same with you, that, you know, there's souls, a whole, ra- whole range of, yeah, people like Gurdjieff and Blake and uh, Ramakrishna, all of these mystical figures. So it kind of, it was my first introduction to mysticism as well. I don't know when you last read it, but I read it again about three, four years ago, and I still thought it was fantastic. You know, it, it seems incredibly contemporary, even though it was written 65 years ago. It's got this amazing sort of freshness about it. Yeah, it's amazing. Maybe that's because he wrote it when he was so young. There was, there was, because it was published when he was 25, wasn't it? And he's famously supposed to have slept out on Hampstead Heath and worked in, in the British Library. Or British Museum. Yeah. And then what about so some of the other books that emerged from that? Were you going to mention uh, another particular book? 
Well, another book which was important to me was, um, you know, as I mentioned that The Outside was the first time I'd been exposed to mysticism, mystical experiences. But I didn't sort of follow through with reading about them until two years later when I was in a bookshop and I saw a book called Mysticism, a study and an anthology, a paperback by a guy called F.C. Happold. And oh, I, I know it. the book. Yeah, it's a great book. It's mm. basically a, a collection of, you know, short descriptions of mystical experiences or excerpts from spiritual texts like the Upanishads and the, the Tao Te Ching. So that book was my first real introduction to spirituality. And, and I had had um, spiritual experiences before then, before, before then, but I hadn't really understood them. Uh, so the book kind of helped me to understand my own experiences. And again, it introduced me to a whole range of spiritual texts like the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and so on. And yeah, for a long time, I used to carry it around with me in my coat pocket and just occasionally on the bus or whatever, on the train, I just read a, an excerpt from it. It was a constant source of inspiration. And, and then coming back to your work, other key moments of insight related to your work, um, especially in relation to consciousness. Two or three years ago, I was thinking about formulating a philosophy. Uh, I've always been interested in, in philosophy, particularly the, the philosophy of mind. Um, so I've always been interested in philosophical approaches like idealism, panpsychism. And I'd always had this awareness that, you know, reality is pervaded with a fundamental spiritual essence of some form. I've had experiences, you know, where I've sensed that essence and, you know, if you read, uh, I've read a lot of anthropolog anthropological texts where indigenous peoples talk about kind of fundamental universal spiritual force, which pervades the whole of reality. A lot of mystical texts talk about this as well, whether you call it Brahman or the Tao and so forth. So I had this idea of, sort of formulating a, a philosophical approach based on that principle. And at first I thought, well, this is a kind of panpsychism. You know, it's kind of, you know, panpsychism is based on the idea that consciousness is inherent in matter. There's a kind of, there's a kind of fundamental consciousness um, intrinsic to material particles. But then I realized that there was something different from my approach to panpsychism, because panpsychism doesn't say that spirit pervades everything. It says that it only, it only pervades matter. So in panpsychism, uh, spirit or consciousness is not fundamental to the universe. It's really only fundamental to matter, which is quite limited. My conception is that spirit is everywhere. It, it pervades space as well as, be, as well as pervading matter. It constitutes the individual being of all living beings. The spirit of the universe becomes our own individual spirit. So I had this idea that I needed, I needed a new term for my philosophical approach. And I suddenly realized that the best term was panspiritism. So I had this at like, the perfect term for my philosophical approach. So then I began to, you know, develop, develop the, pro the approach in more detail based on that fundamental principle. And I realized that if you posit that the fundamental reality of the universe is consciousness or spirit, it actually, you know, it explains a lot of things. It can help to explain altruism. It can help to explain psi experiences. It can help to explain individual consciousness and so on and so forth. So that became the, the basis of my book, Spiritual Science. Indeed. I imagine that this understanding of consciousness, which I very much sympathise with, also influences the way you live your life. Definitely. Yeah. 
I had an experience a, a few weeks ago. I was walking in the woods in Yorkshire. At first, I thought, wow, it's, I was thinking to myself, it's, it's beautiful to be alone. You know, it's great to be alone in the woods. I was kind of the only person. I hadn't seen anybody for half an hour or so, and nobody was within my vision. So I thought, I was thinking to myself, isn't it great to be alone in the, in the countryside? But then I thought, no, 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 I'm not alone. And I suddenly had this awareness that the whole environment was filled with sentient entities. I had this sudden realization that the trees were sentient beings, that the plants and the bushes were sentient beings. Even the rocks were somehow sentient. So I really sensed it that the whole environment was populated by living beings. And I, I mean, I like, I like to live with that awareness, you know, the awareness that, you know, there's really no such thing as an inanimate object. And we're actually surrounded by sentient beings all the time, not just living beings, but even inanimate things are in some way sentient. So that gives me a kind of sense of respect and a sense of connection to my environment. Yes, and that's a little bit like what Tom Berry talks about as opposed to a collection of objects, a communion of subjects. So each of these uh, beings or trees or plants or animals, they're all part of this communion of subjects, which is a, an idea I like very much. Yeah, exactly. And I think the lack of that awareness is at the root of our environmental problems, you know, treating the environment as an inanimate entity treating all even living beings as inanimate objects and the feeling that only human beings are animate and it gives us um it, it generates a sense of disconnection to the environment and it generates a lack of respect for the environment as soon as you sense that the environment is alive then you have the sense of its sacredness you sense that it's full of spirit and it takes away any sense of separation any sense of solitude not solitude any sense of loneliness any sense of existential isolation so it's a very, um, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a joyful state to live in. Yes, I agree. I think this sense of separation um, is really at the root of a lot of our problems, um, not only you know, with, with respect to each other, but you know, nationally and in the environment. So if we had an idea that we weren't fundamentally separate and that we are interconnected, then I think that would have considerable ethical implications. Yeah, yeah, certainly... Um... That's why some people become vegetarians or vegans. That's why some people join environmental organizations. That's why some people develop a kind of transnational perspective that goes beyond any sense of national identity. So I think, I think there is a movement in that direction. I think a lot of people are beginning to transcend separateness. Yes, well, we need to, I think. Um, yeah. Steve, do you have a, a, a proverb or quote, favorite quote or a proverb you live by? Well, there's one, it's not really a quote, but there's one piece of advice that I like to remember and often do remember. And again, it comes from Russell Williams. One of the things Russell often says, said was that um, when you're in your house, just, you know, just living your daily life, you know, you're moving about, you're touching various objects, you're opening doors, closing cupboards and so on, you're walking on the carpet. He said, treat every inanimate object in your house as if it's a living being so treat it be gentle you know every time you open a door do it do it gently when you're walking up the stairs do it slowly and carefully and calmly treating all of the things around you as if they are deserving of respect and it's very simple but if you if you do that you know for me anyway it gives me the sense of calmness and well-being and 
the sense of ease you know when you're rushing around and not really thinking about where you're going it creates a sense of stress so I often remember that and um, I often practice that when I'm in my house I think that's really good advice I, I will we'll try that one out and I'll report back uh, <laughs> to treat things in your house as as, as beings um, and then you're more respectful and, and as you say you're slowing down too which is always yeah. a good idea yeah you could try it when you open a door just do it very slowly and gently and be aware of your hand touching the handle you know you know, feel a sense of respect to the handle and it, it works really well it's very simple but it, it's very effective good well thank you for that and then is there any advice you'd give your younger self well uh as i said before I was quite depressed and alienated when I was young and it kind of lasted for quite a few years until my, probably until my late twenties, really. I had sort of periods of joyfulness and periods of spirituality, but essentially I was living in a state of existential anxiety and alienation. But there was one, there was one occasion when I was, I think I was 25 years old and I was feeling really, really quite depressed. I was living as a musician at the time living a kind of hedonistic lifestyle like musicians do. What was your instrument? Uh, I, was, I was playing the bass guitar and singing okay. in my band. Uh, so, yeah, we used to drink a lot and stay out late and, and so forth. But I had a feeling that this lifestyle wasn't really congruent with my, you know, my true nature. But there was one night when I, um, I woke up about four o'clock in the morning and suddenly everything was completely different. Suddenly I felt as I was, I was kind of out, out, of, out of my body, but also inside my body. Somehow I was, you know, I was part of the universe. And I sensed that the universe was filled with this atmosphere of harmony that was very tangible. It was powerful and tangible, this feeling of euphoria and harmony and meaning. I felt as though I was riding on this kind of ocean of bliss. And suddenly all my problems seemed meaningless. You know, it, there was no doubt at all that everything existed in a, st- in a state of perfection so I thought wow you know everything's fine there's, a, there's nothing to worry about at all and I fell asleep again but it was still inside me for the next day and for the next few days uh, it faded away after a while but essentially that's what I would tell myself as a young person I would say you know there's nothing to worry about everything is in a state of harmony and everything will be okay eventually Excellent advice. I think some of my other guests have emphasized this as well, that that you need to trust life and Mm. that if you do trust life, then things will turn out as they should and as in a way that you can you can grow. Yeah, I think that was one of my issues when I was younger. I was just trying too hard, especially with my writing. I was really forcing myself and, you know, becoming a bit obsessive. And I realized after a while that, you know, when you try really hard, somehow it, it, it becomes an obstruction. Somehow it blocks things um, emerging. So it was, really, it was only really when I started to let go and stop trying that then things started to work out. And I still find that now that, you know, you know when I stop trying and just kind of trust, you know, just kind of tell myself, well, you know, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine then things naturally unfold in the right way. And I guess it's the Tao, isn't it? It's the idea of the Tao. I was going to say exactly that. I read number 56, I think, this morning, and and it says exactly that, that you need to, to this way, we way, the idea of easeful action and Mm -hmm. and not putting any strain, just going, literally going with the flow and and the harmony of, of the action. 
So, yeah. Steve, thank you very much indeed for sharing your insights and wisdom um, with Imaginal Inspirations. I'm sure our listeners will very much enjoy what you had to say. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>